Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. From Nashville, Tennessee, welcome to Music City 911. I'm Rick Beasley, Nashville Communications Officer, retired with 40 years of hardcore experience. And I'm Brandon Hall, sitting in with 20. All right. Considering that we have listeners in six of seven continents, the seventh being Antarctica, which of course has no cases, let's start the show by first discussing an event that is affecting all of us here in the States and all over the world, the coronavirus, or more medically speaking, COVID-19. Most of what we are mainly getting here in the States is hype. Our three local network affiliates to ABC, CBS, and NBC have lost virtually all sense of a responsible journalistic reporting. As an example, out of a 30-minute newscast airing news, weather, and sports, with 15 minutes dedicated to news, all 15 minutes is, yep, you guessed it, about the virus. It's beyond ridiculous. It's panic-driven reporting that has lit a fire under people, pushing some of them to raid the grocery stores as if an apocalyptic event has taken place. It has not. Recently, while the lady and I were shopping at a local Walmart, she witnessed a fellow in the store wearing a tear gas combat-type mask with his hood pulled up and the added accessory of one glove. Store security definitely had their eye on him. Stories are even having to be circulated to warn people not to drink bleach to avoid getting the virus. That evolved from using water and diluted bleach as a cleaner disinfectant, which of course it is. My point here is that while none of us want to get it, especially those that are elderly and those with compromised immune systems, there is a sane way to respond to all this. First, our household no longer watches the local news. It has gotten way too stupid, quite frankly even comical. We will check the appropriate government websites for the information we need in keeping us safe. That way, we remove the ridiculous hype. Secondly, let's put getting the virus in perspective. Here in our state of Tennessee, there are around 1,000 people with it. There are about 5 million people that live in the state. See where I'm going with this? It's all in simple mathematics that any of us can do no matter where you live on our planet. Simply apply the number of people that have it in your area, that's known to have it in your area, to the total population of your area, and you'll see the odds of you contracting it. Let me be clear. I'm not saying we will not get it, just laying out the odds of it happening. So, what do we do to stay safe? First, stay on top of the information provided by your Center for Disease Control whatever that is, in whatever country you're in. Two, continue to live your life normally. Three, understand that for most people, the risk of becoming seriously ill is low. Four, do what most of our parents have already told us to do. 
wash your hands. In this case, often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds, especially before eating or preparing food. Avoid touching your mouth, nose, and eyes with unwashed hands, as these are portals for getting an infection. 5. Know the symptoms. Fever, cough, and possible shortness of breath. If you develop these, simply seek medical advice. Keep in mind as well, you can have the virus and be asymptomatic and never show any symptoms. You can always depend on Brandon and I to be your oasis in the desert when everybody else is losing their minds. We want all of you to stay well. And if you are stuck at home, enjoy hanging out with the family, which is what we did back in the day, and it can be a lot of fun. Or download one of our many past episodes. Brandon? From our end up on the 911 Center, there are a few things that we really need to go over about this. From the public standpoint, if you believe you have any of the symptoms that were mentioned, that's not necessarily a life-threatening emergency right now. Having said that, if you are having some sort of breathing problems, heart problems, things like that, absolutely call 911, get you an ambulance out, have them carry you to the hospital and check you out. If you're having flu-like symptoms or anything like that, that's something you might want to just call the doctor about. Call them up first before you go. You don't want to infect everybody that's there in the waiting room. On the 911 end, additionally, past that, if we do go and pick somebody up, there are several precautions that, that our responders are taking. They are taking the same type of precautions that someone inside the hospital would take. They'll probably come in with mask on, and they're obviously, you know, like they usually do, gloves. But past that, they'll probably keep as much distance as they can. They, of course, they're not going to be able to exactly, but they'll take every precaution, wipe down between runs, things like that. On our end, up at the actual center, some of the things we're taking care of because we are essential personnel just like the, the first responders out in the field, we have to be in there to take the phone calls. So at the Nashville Center, what we're doing is uh, generally we're not having any type of roll calls, and that's kind of a news briefing type thing at the beginning of the day that we have every before every shift. Generally, when we have our roll call, we're kind of in close quarters. Everybody's sitting right next to each other, and there's anywhere from 20 to 30 or more people sitting in there at a time. So they've stopped that completely. On the inside of the 911 room, generally what we do with our shifts while we're on our shift is we'll have a half of a shift on the phones answering the phone calls, and then we'll swap over to the radios and take the rest of the day on that, or vice versa. We've stopped doing that as well. You go in and you have one assignment per day. You're either on the phones or you're on a radio. Reason being for that is just to try to limit as much exposure as we can. We don't want everybody going from keyboard to keyboard and just transferring everything. There's not too much we can do about it, but it's something we can do. That's, that's the smallest thing that we can do for it. Now, one of the things I'd love to see happen up there, and it still hasn't happened yet, is to limit everyone in our 911 facility to the essential personnel only essential to the actual 911 facility itself. I admire that everyone you know, that is essential other places have to have their job to be done. The mayor various uh, persons from emergency management, things like that, that are actually out in the field or off-site and not necessarily employed there at the center. Let them continue doing their job. They don't need to do it up there where we are. Excess news conferences, things like that, that have been, you know, in, when we actually had the tornado a couple of weeks ago, they had almost every news conference from inside the facility where we work at, inside the war room, 
inside, uh, you know, our conference room, something like that, they'd have those things. But we don't need to have a constant flow of visitors coming in and out of there in a place where we're already in close quarters and we're already at risk of contamination just from being in close quarters of each other. Somebody brings that in, it's going to spread like wildfire, and we won't have anybody to answer the 911 calls. Now, we're not trying to downplay the, the severity of this virus. It is a, a serious condition. Uh, if you actually contract it, there's a number of things that can happen we've kind of discussed. But, you know, you could end up in the hospital. You could end up dead. But the chances of it are very low. So just as we said before, take every precaution you have. It's, it's normal stuff like you, you should be doing every day. You should be washing your hands before and after every meal. You need to be just keeping a clean place in general. And if you have a desk that you work at or you're around people, practice social distancing. Stay about six feet apart from each other. Wipe down your desk with some cleaning wipes, whatever you have to do. Just normal, everyday stuff that you should already be doing. What kind of calls are you guys getting related to the virus? Directly related to the virus, I mean, it's hard to really pick out what they are. If somebody's calling up with, like we said before, flu-like symptoms with an addition of kind of a difficulty breathing, things like that, that's kind of one of the things that we look at uh, as being a potential case. Now, past that, because we've had some different restrictions put in, into place, you know, places like bars and non-essential uh, places that are they're having to be closed, people are calling about everything. Uh, people are calling about people hoarding different uh, types of toilet papers and meats and groceries, things like that. And like, we're going to be able to do something about that. There's nothing against the law for buying a lot of toilet paper. You know, it may be against store policy, but it's definitely not against the law. People calling in uh, about more than 10 people gathered in a group or standing too close together on the side of the street or just any number of things. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised a bit if we start getting calls about someone, you know, living in an apartment complex and saying, oh, you know what? The, the person that lives next door to me, they've been coughing a lot, so they probably got the damn virus. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't see that. Uh, it's it's a possibility. It's just, it's not really valid if they think they, I mean, they're, they're inside their house. They're not going to give it to you through the walls, so... Have you had any calls where people are concerned because they can't find toilet paper and they've ran out because there has been 911 centers to have that kind of stuff go on? As far as I know, we haven't. But, you know, of course, I don't take every one of the calls up there, thank God. But, <laughs> I mean, if uh, if something like that were to happen, I mean, uh, there's there's nothing still we can do about it. I mean, it, all I could tell them to do is, you know, we, we didn't have toilet paper forever. I mean, there's, I don't know if I'd have to tell them there's, leaves in the forest or if they just have to run down to the you know the local gas station use theirs or what i, I don't know what i'd tell them because that's something i i mean it's not something we deal with i mean it's it shouldn't be something we deal with i mean that's the same thing as if somebody was to call up and say you know what i've ran out of beer can y'all do something about it no that's not our place to do it when they call in do you take it from the standpoint that they're snitching on people or they're really panicked about what they're calling in about it, it just really depends. I mean, on the, the person that's calling and I mean, some people, it just, it really seems that they just like the people who call in rec- reckless drivers all the time. And we have some people that call in about everyone who's speeding and things like that. I'm not saying that, that that's, I mean, obviously it's against the law to speed, but you know, there are so many other priorities that we have going on. I mean, we, if you have somebody that you see that's reckless driving, call in, that's, that's fine. We just not, might not be able to get around to it right then and there. But for something like this, it's really hard to tell. It just kind of depends on the person. I mean, you kind of tell them the inflection, their voice, or, you know, maybe their kind of range of entitlement. I, I don't know exactly how to put it, but 
with something like this, it's, it's so foreign to us. We've never had to deal with anything like this before. So, I mean, we don't know. I mean, people are, people are panicked. I mean, they, they really are, but it's hard to tell with, from one person to the next, what their actual agenda is for this, you know, when they're calling and seeing what, that's, what's odd about this. The 40 years that I was there, uh, we had viruses to come up. We had mirrors, we had SARS, but this time around, it has taken on a whole new life of its own as compared to the other ones. And I don't know whether the government, uh, it's because they've taken a different stance than what they did before. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that's what's happening. That kind of got it kicked up. And then, well, if the government's making as big of an issue out of it, this is really got to be big stuff here when they're starting to shut everything down. I think from the government aspect, they may actually see the, the fact that this is a, a more contagious uh, type illness and, you know, it's more resistant to fever and things like that that would normally kill off uh, a virus. Now, in, you know, the, the big scheme of things, some of the other diseases uh, that you mentioned, I don't think they were quite as easily uh, contractable from person to person. I mean, they obviously were because it happened. But this one, it seems like if you're within a, f- a couple feet of somebody that has it, it, it's pretty easy to transfer from one person to the next. I, I don't know. I'm speculating on that, but well, it's it, supposed it, to be about three times more catchable than the flu. Yeah. And we all know how easy it is to catch the flu. I mean, I, you know, I won't say that it happens to everybody every year, but it's a huge outbreak pretty much every year. Ever almost I mean, you know, someone, you almost always know someone that has the flu, you know, at least during the, you know, once again a year. I mean, so it, it definitely happens. I know everybody is getting so tired of hearing about all this. I know I am. And we all just want things to begin to move back to some form of normalcy. It will. We just all have to do our part to help it get there. The different countries are in different stages right now, as we are too here in North America. We, being a part of the media too, just wanted to give you our take on it without bringing hype and panic to you. Lord knows you guys have already heard enough of that. Please know that we are praying for all involved. We're all in this together. Moving on to our first call of the evening, we're going to do this just like we would have it up there at work. We never know what kind of call we're going to get when we pick up the phone. Okay, 911. Broken Air 911. Hello? Hello? Hi, where are you at? Broken Air, Oklahoma, 7411. What address? 7911. Okay, are you the only one there? No, my brother's attacking my family. Your dad is attacking your family? No, my brother. He has a nine days deal with me. Okay, who's attacking your family? What? Who's attacking your family? Yes. Who who is it? Do they Are you there? Hello? Hi, what's going on there? What's going on there? Hello? Hello? 
At around 11.30 on July the 22nd, police were alerted to 709 Magnolia Court by a 911 phone call made by 12-year-old Daniel Beaver, who stated that his brother was attacking the family. Screaming, commotion, and a male voice were heard in the background before the line went dead. Dispatchers tracked the address by searching the number. After a failed attempt to call David Bieber, who was the father, they dispatched officers to the scene. When the first responding officers arrived, they saw blood around the porch of the house. They knocked on the door, heard a faint voice calling for help, and forced their way into the house, where they immediately found a 13-year-old girl, Crystal Beaver, bleeding from multiple stab wounds. After pulling her out of the home, the officers discovered Daniel Beaver and the rest of the victims, who were all deceased. It was believed that one of the brothers responsible for the killings lured out the victims by pretending he was under attack. Crystal Beaver survived the killings, but was critically injured from her wounds. She identified two of her brothers as the assailants in the familicide, saying that they had lured her to a bedroom before slitting her throat and stabbing her in the stomach and arms. She underwent surgery at a nearby hospital and was listed at that time in serious but stable condition. The girl was initially reported to be the 911 caller, but as we know later, it turned out to be Daniel. A two-year-old girl, Autumn Beaver, was also found alive and unharmed inside the house. The surviving children were put in state custody. The parents, as well as three children, were all stabbed to death. Knives, hatchets, and other bladed weapons were found at the scene, along with protective gear. Law enforcement officials claimed at least some of the weapons found were used in the killings. Five people were killed in the familiar side, and one other person was injured. A medical examiner determined that the common cause of death was multiple sharp force injuries. Autopsies revealed that victims died between the late hours of July 22nd and the early hours of July 23rd. The victims were identified as David Beaver, 52. He was the father, killed by at least 28 stab wounds to the torso, face, neck, left arm, and hand. April Beaver. 44, a mother, killed by blunt force trauma and at least 48 stab wounds to the head, neck, torso, and arms and hands. Daniel Beaver was their son, 12 years old, killed by nine stab wounds to the back, shoulder, and chest. Christopher Beaver, who was seven, also a son, killed by six stab wounds to the back, chest, shoulder, and lower leg. Victoria Beaver, five years old, she was a daughter, killed by 18 stab wounds to both sides of her neck, her chest, back, and upper arm. And we also had Crystal Beaver, 13 years old, who was injured by a slit throat and stab wounds to the stomach and arms. And the two-year-old Autumn Beaver was unharmed. Robert Beaver confessed to committing the familicide. He claimed that he and his brother planned the act for some time and intended to commit a shooting spree outside the family hoping it would rival and even outdo the 1999 Columbine High School massacre. He later confessed that he and his brother planned to dismember the bodies of their family, place them in storage bins, and hide them in the attic of the home. He also stated that they planned to steal the family car, shoot and kill five random people at multiple locations, and eventually achieve a body count of at least 50 people, 
an officer who, inter- who interviewed Robert Beaver stated that Beaver admired serial killers, hoped to strike in locations outside of Oklahoma, and wanted to achieve a body count of up to 100 or more people. These horrendous killings were committed on July 22, 2015. It was adjudicated with the older brother Robert Beaver pleading guilty to all counts and being sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Michael Beaver was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Both are currently serving their sentences. So Beasley, on a call like this, we don't have very much in the form of the call itself. There wasn't very much actually said. All we knew was that the the brother, it sounded like he was attacking some parts of the family, and then they hung up. So, you know, we send officers out to investigate. That's, That's really all we can do at that point. So everything else afterwards... It's found out at the scene. Somebody up at the 911 center, until we're told by the officers and the news media, we might not ever know anything what actually happened out there. Right. And by the information that was gained in... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In this call, there were actually two calls. We played the one where there was actually audibility in there. The other one was, uh, it was a call, but there was... There it was, was a call back, and there wasn't, any, there wasn't anything on the line. They uh, Somebody answered, but never said anything, which actually happens quite a bit. Right. So, it could just be an everyday domestic. You had no idea that when those officers arrived on the scene out there that that would be the scene that they would have. Yeah, there's, they had no idea what they are going to walk into with that, that, that point. I mean, it, from the report we had, uh, which actually came from Wikipedia, um, you know, a lot of the reporting that we had on that, it said that they walked up the, the front porch and found blood on the porch. And, you know, they ended up having to make forced entry into the house after hearing a little girl screaming for help or faintly crying for help or something along that line. Right. There was nothing in the call. Uh, that came in that said there was a stabbing, there was anything on that level. Yeah. So the officers going out there probably had the same attitude that we would have had when we took the call, that it's, eh, okay, it's another domestic call, it's a bunch of kids fighting, or the brothers and sisters have gotten into it, and here we go. Yeah. It was a lot more than that. Oh, yeah. And on that note of not knowing what you're going to walk into or what might happen next, uh, we've talked in a previous episode about each of us having to uh, pull our gun on somebody. Luckily, mm-hmm. neither one of us had to actually pull the trigger, but Thank we did God. have to pull the gun on somebody and, and try to end the situation that way. Uh, luckily for, for me, I actually had the whole incident on dash cam. There wasn't too much that could actually be seen, but the audio with it uh, that I actually still have, and I'm going to play for you right here, it's uh, it's a little bit more telling. We, there were several people that called 911 actually when it happened. But those calls are nothing compared to what actually happened in the call, in the, uh, the dash cam video itself. So a little background on this call uh, before we get into it. Uh, one of my side jobs that I've done in the past uh, is a ride share driver, you know, for Uber, Lyft, things like that. And uh, this particular call, uh, one of my favorite times to drive is actually late at night because you get all the, the drunks, the people having, out, out, having a good time, and it's generally those, those rides are pretty good. 
this night it wasn't quite so good. I was uh, sitting there waiting for uh, my pickup on a kind of a main drag here in Nashville, and this is what happened when uh, my passenger got in and it kind of unfolded past there. This is just the regular audio of me and my passenger chatting, nothing going on, and then kind of all hell breaks loose after that. So here we go. You Jacob? I am Davis, but Jacob is right there. All right. He's being a dumbass. He won't get in, uh, get in the car because he wants a hot dog, I guess. I'm fucking smashed. <laughs> I've had probably 10 beers. Oh, yeah? And three Red Bull vodkas. I swear. I, <laughs> I don't know how I'm alive. Like, I really don't. <laughs> like, that was like an average night for me back when I was going out. Mm-hmm. Actually, kind of light for me, really. Can I have one of these out for you? Yeah, go ahead. What's your name? Brandon. Davis. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, man. Where are you from? I'm from here. From Nashville? Yeah. I'm from Alabama. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I live here, though. What part are you, uh, Alabama are you from? I'm from near Auburn. Okay, I gotcha. Near Auburn, yeah. And uh, I live here now in uh, Creep Hall, Berry Hill area. Yeah. It's all right. I like it. That's your address on the lane? Uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, right. a lane drive, yeah. Okay. Jake! Jake! What the fuck? Hang on, stay here. Jake! Get the fuck in here! Jake! Get in here now! Jake! 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 Get in here now! Jake! Get in the fucking car! Get in the fucking car! Get in the fucking car! Get! Jake, what the fuck? I didn't do shit, bro. So as y'all could hear, that went from zero to a hundred real quick. Um, the kind of back end after everything got settled out there, what was told to me and the police officer that responded to the scene was that, uh, Jake, the guy that was out on the, the side of the road, he was standing at a hot dog stand and this is about three o'clock in the morning after the bars had closed and everything. He was just out there waiting for a hot dog. He was out there smoking a cigarette and some random person he didn't know walked up to him and asked him for a, a drag of a cigarette. Being a smart person, like anybody should, he said, no, I, you can't have a, you know, smoke off my cigarette. And the guy reached up and jerked the cigarette out of his mouth, threw it on the ground, presented a gun, and either shot it right next to his head or was trying to shoot the guy in the head completely randomly. At that point, you know, we heard the gunshot. I heard it. We had the window rolled down. I walked out and started giving commands for him to drop the gun. And as soon as he saw the, the barrel pointed at him, he immediately put his gun down to his side and ran off. There was probably, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 15 people standing around. So if he would have shot and killed this guy, he could have started, you know, shooting other people. There's no telling. Uh, we don't really know. Uh, there was no real good identification on who he was, but I'm sure if it's just some random druggie or something like that, he's probably got picked up at some point, you know, on something else. So, but it was, it was really tense and it, it, uh, it certainly got me thinking afterwards. I wasn't thinking too much about it, you know, when it actually happened. It's just you you do what you got to do, and that's that's all it is. So, what was on your mind when you heard that gunfire? 
immediately I, I, I looked out the window after I heard the gunfire and I saw the guy waving the gun around and, and cussing and stuff. So, you know, my first thought is just go out and he, he's like I said, standing in the middle of all these people. I'm not sure what he's going to try to do next. So my first thought is trying to save all these people that are out there and from this crazy guy shooting a gun in, in a crowded area too. I mean, this is right on one of, one of our main strips that we have in Nashville. No, absolutely. When you got out of the car, what was the status of him and the gun? When you, he still had the gun. He, he actually had the gun kind of waving up in the air, you know, yelling kind of like a madman and everything like that, trying to be Billy badass and, like I said, as soon as he saw a gun pointed at him and me yelling at him, you probably hear me in the background. It's kind of hard hearing me back there with the the passenger in the car still yelling, but you could still kind of hear me yelling to put the gun down from, you know, I'm standing behind the car at that point. And I had to reposition myself because the line of fire that I had from standing, using the car as a kind of a, a barrier, I would have, if I would have had to sh- shoot, I would have shot into all the people too. So I had to move around and actually expose myself and, uh, you know, to get a clear shot on the guy if I had to. Oh, and everything did. It went from zero to 100 miles an hour just in the snap of a finger. Yeah. And and I'm sure there were listeners of ours that when they heard that gunfire, it was, man, what in the world was that? And you've got to react. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it was. I mean, I I was just sitting there. And, you know, luckily, a lot of, a lot of places, a lot of states anyway, um, you know, Uber and Lyft both have policies against anybody in the car having a gun, but mm-hmm. in, in Tennessee, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, any contractor or something like which, which we are considered an independent contractor in Tennessee, independent contractors are allowed by state law to, uh, carry guns in their car. It, you know, their company rules don't override that. They, they can't say anything about that, but you know, so luckily I was armed there. You know, I've I, like before. I never had to pull my gun on anybody, but that time it was, you know, more than justified. And truth be told, I probably could have shot the guy and been fine with it. I didn't want to kill anybody at all that night or shoot anybody. But you know, luckily the guy at least ran off. And, and there's no way in this world that I would I would do that kind of work and not be armed. Yeah, exactly. You, you set yourself up. Yeah, I mean, even you hear about uh, Uber driving. And that's that's one of the things with 911 calls uh, that we get up at work. You know, a lot of people, they have all these uh, calls they they play and talk about on the news and stuff like that about how passengers or whoever like that are getting kidnapped or whatever. Most of the time, those people are getting in the wrong car. They have numerous ways to identify the right car. Um, with me, if somebody was to get a, um, a ride from me before I even get there, they know the type and color of my car, my driver's license, my name, and also uh, they have a picture of me. They have all di- these different means of verifying who I am. And then before they get in the car, they can ask for my name and look at my driver's, the, the tag on my car. They've got all that. But they still, you know, I don't know if it's just drunk people not really looking at what they're getting into or what, but they jump in the wrong cars. But the the fact is that I'd probably say, and there's no real way to get an accurate count on this, drivers get attacked much more than passengers do. Um, I mean, there's obviously going to be some drivers that they get pissed off some night and they just decide to beat up a passenger or whatever like that if they get an argument with them. But most of the time, because you're sober and the people you're picking up are drunks, you know, they're, you might get a happy drunk. You might get a, you know, <laughs> deranged drunk. There's no telling. But I'd probably say somewhere in the realm of 10 to 1, if not more than that, as as far as the uh, drivers themselves getting attacked. I mean, I, 
I've actually, uh, a friend of mine took a, a call from a, a person who was out uh, driving and two people jumped in their car. You know, it, they'd actually stole a phone from somebody and ordered Uber. She went to pick them up and they ended up uh, pulling a gun on her, went around and they, they did drugs in the back of the car, held her at gunpoint the whole time and made her go and withdraw money from her bank account and all kinds of mess. I mean, that and me personally, I've taken a call where an Uber driver was in kind of a, kind of a bad neighborhood. And he was just driving to a call and somebody shot out his window completely randomly. I mean, other than the fact that he was a, a driver, I don't know why he would, anybody would want to shoot at him, but they did. Well, like you said, there's protections in place for the rider. Yeah, exactly. Yes. What kind of protections are in place for you picking up the rider as to what you may be, may be about to deal with? Actually, there's, there's really none. You've got uh, on Lyft, you have the ability to actually, uh, the, the passenger anyway, to upload your picture along with your name. Pass that on Uber, they have the name. That's all you have. So some random person's going to get in your car. Generally, they'll try to verify that they're the right person. And, you know, if I I've, I've did this actually for, you know, about two years, I guess, and I gave probably somewhere in the realm of 2,000 rides. I kind of knew where to look for people, you know, what the setup was and everything. And if there was a couple times where I pulled up to a place and it was kind of in the middle of nowhere and there wasn't anybody around. And, you know, I sat there for a minute. And I'm like, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm going to go ahead and cancel the ride. I'm pulling off. I'm not going to take a chance at this. So, you know, on the driver's end, there's really not too much as far as verification of who you're picking up. Yeah. Well, in that situation that night, uh, you had two choices. You could either shelter in place and hope everything was going to be okay. Yeah. Or you could get out and confront the guy who was the problem. And that's why I pound on people getting their training and getting their handgun permit. Because let's say that you were in the car and he started blazing, you've got no way to defend yourself. Nor can you defend anyone in that vehicle because you've got no weapon. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And it's definitely a problem in places uh, like New York. And in California, where you can't have a, a weapon in a vehicle, if, if if you do, you're in you're in serious trouble. The other side of that is, if you don't, you could be in serious trouble too if something bad happens, like happened to you. Yeah, and luckily nobody got hurt that night at all. But I mean, other than the the guy who had his, uh, you know, the gun go off right next to his head, you know, right next to his ear. So he, I, I'd be willing to bet he probably lost some hearing out of it. But I. I don't know. I didn't, you know, follow up too much after it actually happened. Right. But the point is you had the tool to be able to affect a solution had he went further with it. And exactly. that would have, and that would have been something that some, someone else might not have had, had they not been armed. Yeah. And you know, like we said before in Tennessee, chances are someone, you know, standing around you, they've got a gun on it. The chances of a good guy having a gun in Tennessee are actually pretty good usually. And and I understand that it's a personal choice whether or not someone wants to carry a weapon. Uh, I can only tell you that you don't want to be in a bad way when something like that happens to you. That's just my personal feelings, and that's why I go everywhere armed that I can. Yeah, and I'm the same way. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, why would you?" I get, I, for instance, why would you want to wear uh, your gun inside your house, or why would you want to have a gun ready inside your house, whatever like that? I'll tell you, <laughs> I mean, I work in midnight shift. 
I don't know how many times that we've I've gotten calls myself for someone getting their house broken into and they have to run and hide in their closet with nothing to do, only with the hopes that the police can actually make it there in time. If they're found inside their closet, they have nothing to, to defend themselves with. There's no telling what could happen to these people because they they have no weapon there to actually help themselves out of in that situation. And and we've both been there long enough to know that a lot of times the police can't get on the scene quick enough. Exactly, yeah. And, and you have to have a way to fend off an attacker until they get there. Exactly. You, you, have, to, you have to think about it this way. Um, in the middle of the night, there's going to be less traffic on the road, yes. But there's also, because there's less crime, that means there's less police officers happening in the middle of the night. So if you're inside your house, middle of the night, you hear a window, your back door, or something like that get kicked in, and then you hear somebody rummaging around, there's no telling what kind of person that is. They could be just a a regular everyday burglar, which doesn't really matter, you know, uh, if they just want to get property or if they want to harm you, rape you, there's no telling what they want to do. But the police officer, if they're five minutes away, that's five minutes they have to drive to you. If they're 10 minutes away, that's 10 minutes. 10 minutes without any type of protection for you at all, except for the person you're on the phone with, and that's not too much help. Well, a perfect example of that was the podcast uh, in White Center, Washington. Yeah, exactly. It, he had a weapon. Had he not had a weapon, how would that call have ended or could have ended? All right, B. So, you know, the past few episodes, we've hit them pretty hard uh, with all the calls. And, I mean, this one, too, was uh, a you know, pretty rough episode. So what you got in the realm of some humor for us tonight? Sundays back in the day. In the early days of my career, wasn't that busy at all. And one of our old crusty dispatchers, he would sit around during the day trying to figure, trying to figure things to do to people. And it was always the, the old ladies that he screwed around with. So I don't know whether he got in the phone book and just went down through there and tried to find an old name like a Ruby or Evangeline or, you know, some some elderly lady's name. Well, anyway, on this particular Sunday, he called this lady up on the telephone. Of course, he'd kind of get an audience around him when he did it where he could get a good laugh out of it. And he called her on the telephone and he said, uh, Hey, lady. He says, uh, I'm the telephone repairman and I'm uh, I'm down here on the pole down the street from where you live. I'm up here working on the lines. He says, now listen, <clears throat> I'm going to be doing this now for about 25 minutes. So if the phone rings, you know, that'll be me kind of mixing these wires together. So don't answer it because if you do, I'm going to get electrocuted. That's why I'm calling you. And she said, well, all right, dear, that's, that, that, that's fine. I won't. 25 minutes? He says, right, 25 minutes. Just don't answer the phone. I'm up here working. She says, okay, bye, and she hangs up the telephone. Well, he waited about 30, and he dials her back, and he lets it ring and ring and ring, and finally she says, hello? And then you hear, <laughs> Probably gave the woman a heart attack. But that's the kind of stuff he would do. And I mean, I'm telling you, it was it was hysterical. We would be laying on the floor laughing. That actually it, it kind of reminds me of this uh this it, it wasn't a, a prank call like this at all. It it was just a unfortunate circumstance. Uh 
So we had a uh, a report of a guy that was uh, actually a car full of guys that was driving down the road, mm-hmm. and they had uh, they had robbed somebody at gunpoint, and I guess afterwards to celebrate, they decided to roll down the windows and just start shooting out the windows just kind of randomly, and that's what they did. Well, we got a police officer behind them, and of course they ran, and uh, by the time they actually got to where they stopped at, there was a you know probably a hundred officers out there trailing behind them. Well, they ran inside this house. And uh, back in the old day, we had a, a you know what we called the the blue book. It's where you could reverse look up by the address somebody's mm-hmm. home phone number. So uh, they got out there, and of course they had the house surrounded. They got on their bullhorns. They they was you know ordered them to come out, and they didn't. And the the sergeant that was on the scene, that was the commanding officer on the scene at the time, I was on the radio when all this happens. He says, "This is the address where we're at. Look up the phone number, call in there, and tell them to to come out." put the guns down and come out with their hands up. So I, I jumped in the blue book, found the address and uh, I went down there and I called it rang a couple times. And you have to, you know, think too, that this is actually, it, it was probably 10 o'clock at night, something like that, you know, second shift. And, uh, so I call up and, uh, so uh, on the, on the phone, some, uh, the woman answers, she goes, Hello. Uh, yeah, th- this is Hall with the police department. We've got your house surrounded now. Tell everybody to come outside, put their guns down, and come out with their hands up. Pardon? I said, ma'am, I'm not joking around. Everybody inside, put their guns down, come outside with their hands up. And the whole time I'm looking down at the blue book, and I realized I called the wrong house. <laughs> Ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I've called the wrong number. Are you sure there's people in my house with, with guns? No, ma'am. No, I called the wrong house. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything's completely fine. Go back to sleep. Good Lord. <laughs> so I gave that woman a heart attack probably doing that, and it was just a simple mistake. That's all it was. Well, the good thing is you're on the right podcast, so we know we're not going to make a mistake this time. <laughs> so now that you've got the right listeners listening, tell them about the Facebook. All right, yeah, uh, just like we've said in a couple of other episodes, you can find us on Facebook, Music City 911, at Music City 911. Uh, you can do the same thing on Instagram and Twitter. Follow us on all those, and we actually have a discussion page uh, for our episodes on uh, Facebook as well. Uh, follow us on there. Be sure to like everything. Share with your friends, your family. If you know any uh, police officers, firefighters, or 911 dispatchers, share with them too. We're just trying to get the word put out like we always do. All right. Well, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, I think so. I think we wrap it up on that. All right. Well, we'll see you on the next episode of Music City 911. In the meantime, I'm Rick Beasley. And I'm Brandon Hall. All right. You guys take care now. We'll see you. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.